Thanks for joining us for today's sermon. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working in your life. If the messages of this church have touched you in some way, please share that with us by clicking on the contact tab at lifesc.org to send us an email. And if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do so online to help us bring messages just like this one to you each week. It is our prayer that God blesses you through this message today. Go, John 4 and 35. God woke me up with this. And um, I want you to know that the Lord told me that revival is not coming for this church. He said revival's here. We just need to encourage it. That's all we have to do. So I want to give you that word from the Lord. I believe it is prophetic. John 4.35, it says this, Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, are ready to harvest. And he, he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. Everybody say life eternal. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Notice that the sower gets to rejoice with the reaper. Amen? And they're not the same person. It's really important that you understand that. Someone, I was watching a little bit of an excerpt from Brett Favre, and they said that when he threw the final pass into the NFC touchdown, everybody on the sidelines were rejoicing. And some said, we weren't just rejoicing because we won, we're rejoicing because we just got an $8,000 bonus check, and Brett Favre made it happen. So they were like excited because they didn't do the work, but they were rejoicing, they were receiving from what Brett Favre did. I thought it was kind of funny. It's not in my notes, but I'm just telling you that Sometimes when we sow and when others sow, we may reap, but we can rejoice together. Amen? All right. Well, that's not in my notes, but I guess that is something that I wanted to say. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Everyone say no labor. Other men labored. And ye are entering into their labors. I believe that this is a prophetic word for some of you. Other people have labored where we're going to reap. I really believe that. This building is a direct a direct realization of that prophecy. Amen? That this building is the direct result of reaping where others labored. So that's going to be the process. Anytime God does something for you, it begins a process, and he's going to continue to do that for this church. I believe revival's here, and I want to pray for you. Jesus, help us to make room in our hearts for what you're going to do. I'm grateful for your presence. I'm grateful for who you are in my life. I'm grateful that you help me in every area. No, I may not be perfect, but I am surely trying to be a man of God, to help these people to live for you with all their hearts and all their minds. And I thank you for people that love God with everything in them. In Jesus' name. Well known as almost every Christmas carol that bids let our heart, let every heart prepare him room. How many have sung it? You've sung the song, amen. Let every heart prepare him room. It is an excellent piece of theology drawing a comparison between the coldness of the lack of hospitality found in Bethlehem so long ago and the inner landscape of each of our hearts. We should prepare our hearts so that there is room for God. Someone say amen. But it's just a good story unless we apply it to our lives. We can have a heart that's prepared, but it needs to, when a heart is prepared, it should affect a life 
and we should prepare him to be in our life. Amen. You do have a stable uh, relationship with God. Sometimes whenever you, you, you live for the Lord and, you, and you're doing the best you can, I understand that we have tried to make room for Jesus the best we can. But when he truly comes, we have to know that there's going to need to be things pushed out of the way, brother, Sister Carla. There's going to be things that have to be moved aside because Jesus is more important. I wonder if we went back and we informed the innkeeper of who really was staying there, who really was knocking on his door that day wanting to stay there if he would have responded the same way, I tell you he wouldn't have, Brother Rob. He would have made room for that for that Messiah. He would have made room for Jesus to be born. Mary carrying a child ready to be born. And surely it wasn't a place where anybody would expect a king to be born. But he was born in a manger. Someone say a manger. And in that manger, we find that Jesus coming to earth did not need all of the all of the pomp and circumstance of a king to be a king. Amen. He didn't need everything that we think someone should need to be the Messiah, the one truly coming. But he found his way into a manger. He he brought salvation even through a stable. Amen, somebody. So we're finding that if we look at the scriptures, we know that Jesus is talking later on. And he's telling stories to his disciples. And here we come to a situation where he's talking about there being reaping and sowing and different things. And in the month that he's talking about, he's saying there's, they had a statement in the Jewish customs that there's four months till, till harvest. We, we don't have to worry about things until the harvest time comes. And I remember, I remember a guy that first time I saw four by four on the side of a truck, he said, that's a farmer's truck. And I said, why do you mean? He goes, because they work four months out of the year, <laughs> four months on one end, four months on the other, spring and harvest. And it was kind of funny to me that, that there's this statement that Jesus used from their culture where he's trying to get them to understand that even though I'm talking about harvest, you have to understand there's perpetual harvest that takes place in the kingdom. There's a constant turnover, a constant situation where someone else has sowed. Even though you didn't sow, you may have a harvest come from something you didn't sow into. So even if you look like, hey, I don't have a Bible study right now. I don't have something going on that may seem to be bringing a harvest. God's going to provide the harvest off of a work somebody else has already done. Amen. That's what I believe. So revival is here. We are not to lament the situations of our world. We're not to look at how, how devastating the disasters and the things that are going on. We're not to learn lessons from liberal media and different places of corrupt politicians trying to push their agenda. We're not interested in all that. This is not a pulpit to preach propaganda. This is a pulpit to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the reason why we preach that is because he came to this world and this whole month we're going to celebrate Jesus coming and celebrate his his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm grateful for it. Amen? I'm grateful for it. And so I find in the scriptures that there's places where we need to make him room. And I don't mean by making room like praying for a good parking spot at the mall. <laughs> I don't, it's not, that's not what I mean, Kayla. I don't mean like praying that your gift for somebody that you find is on sale 40% off. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, saving room in the main meal for Jesus' birthday cake. That's not making room for Jesus, okay? What I mean is literally spending some time and asking God, what is it that I can dedicate to you more faithfully? 
It's pulling him into your schedule even when it's busy, when your schedule's busy. Because we have to find time with him and making time for him in the morning with your coffee and reading his love letters to you is something that can change your world and change your life. I hope that you're spending time with the Lord. Are you longing for him? Are you longing for him? Have you literally set up a space for him? I was at a, at a friend's house. I went to actually find Eden. She's got all these friends in our complex. And, and I went to find her. She was hanging out at a friend's house, and they're an Indian family. Um, and they live up the hill. And um, I, at this point, don't even know how to say their last name. But when I first walked in, it was like they opened the door, and they're like, please come, please come, please come, please come. And they, they were like, please and they literally took me and walked me all the way through their house. They like gave me the whole tour, Lisi. And I'm like, I was a little uncomfortable because I'm an American. You know, you don't just take me to your back bedroom and show me your personal bathroom, you know. But they're like, please, come, please, come. And he's like, this is where I work out on my treadmill. This is where I shower. This is where. And it was almost uncomfortable, Ellen. It was like, oh, my goodness. I can't even believe this. And so... What happened was I kept on wanting to like back away from the tour, you know, like that's nice, that's nice, and make my way toward the door, you know. And they kept on wanting me to come further and further. And they had a special place just set up for their God. They had a whole area, and some of them even have whole rooms, have a whole area that's just made room for their God. And they don't do anything in that space but pray to their gods. You don't go in there and watch Packers football. You don't go in there and play Yahtzee or Sari or Monopoly. You don't, you don't spend any time in that room or in, that, in front of that space that they have set up doing things, anything other than worshiping their gods, plural, many. If they can do that for gods that are many, that they don't even know to their high God, Rama, and all of these other gods, hundreds and hundreds of gods. And we have one true living God that came. How can we not create room for him in our hearts and in our lives? What if we would build a room? What if we would build a space where we didn't do anything, but we sought God there? We got on our knees and we went after the things of God and we got a passion for God. Do you just have, mm, do you just have a stable relationship with God? Have you just set up your relationship of salvation and sat down and said, that's good enough I've got my one-way ticket to heaven and I'm okay do you only have a stable relationship with Jesus Christ or have you decided and would you please decide today with me and help me help you to build a room and build a space and make room for Jesus Christ in your life other than just a stable relationship but have been filled with the Holy Ghost but also seeking the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Have been baptized in Jesus' name, but carrying his name to others that don't even know him. Have repented of your sins and do it enough that you want others to find repentance in him. Are you just living a stable relationship with Jesus? Or have you made room for him in your life? I'm not trying to just be preachy. I guarantee you that I spent enough time praying, fasting over this sermon to spend, to spend ample time giving it, 
enough scripture and enough stuff to handle, but I want you to know that I cannot speak and preach to you without a heart in this sermon. I've got to put myself into this, and I want you to know that if I put myself into this, you should put yourself into everything you do, because that is my initial response to everything that I feel like God wants me to do. He's like, you need to put more heart into it. You need to put more effort into it. He always draws me deeper and further in. He never says, it's enough to just sit and wait and just watch. He always wants me to make more room for him. Yeah, I know it's the Christian walk, and sometimes whenever you do things for the Lord it seems like it should be enough and there should not be more asked of you but Jesus always wants more of us because he loves us and those that are willing to give more of him are more to him always have more of him in their life amen there was always the situation where people think Jesus had favorites Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, different people that walked with God, but he always had those three that he called on when he went higher. When he went up the mountain, he, James, John, and Peter, they, they always went with him for some reason. Why? Because they were so dedicated. They had made so much room for God. In fact, it says in one place in Scripture that John, when they were sitting at the Last Supper, John loved Jesus so much that he got as close to him as he could. He laid his head right on his chest while they're trying to eat. How would that be for you? Like, hey, you're having some, having some chow and someone just wants to lay on you. <laughs> come here, Reese. Let me use you for just a minute. I'm sorry. I'm not going to embarrass you too bad, but come on up here. So Reese, let's pretend Reese is Jesus. You know what John was doing? He was doing one of these numbers. That's some nice cologne, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I can't not embarrass people. That's, that's how that works for me. John was right here. John was doing one of these the whole time. You want to know why? Because he wanted to be near to Jesus' heart. He wanted to be as close to him as possible because when you get your heart in line with Jesus' heart, when he says, would you go deeper? Would you put more heart into it? Guess what? You will be the one that understands what's going on. You will be the one that has revelation because when your head is close to his heart, you will not have confusion in your life. You will know what God wants for you and what God wants for your life and the plan he has for you. And John was always right here. I don't know if it looks funny or crazy. I don't know if it's a little bit ridiculous, but I'm going to go ahead and lean on Jesus because that is what I can do. That's the physical response that he had. That's as close as he could get. And the Bible calls him the one loved of Jesus, the beloved, because he got so close to Jesus. And you know what happened? Yeah, there was one that failed. There's always a rotten one in the bunch, isn't there? Never, always, never, never just a... That problem, that problem's always there. But you know what's funny, Reese? Is Jesus said, one's going to betray me here at this table. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter, being impetuous, said, Jesus, who is it? No, he didn't. You know what he did? He leaned over. He said, hey, John. Hey, John. Ask Jesus who's going to betray him. Why didn't he just ask Jesus? It's not like Jesus was 100 miles away. Jesus was at the same table. He had the same access point as John. But he knew that John would get an answer because his head was closest to Jesus' heart. Oh, my.
my goodness. If you understand that right now, you understand that whenever God calls you closer and God calls you deeper, if you put your head and your spirit as close as you can to God, if you will make room for him to have more of his presence in your life, people will come to you for answers from Jesus Christ. They will look to you. Oh, they could pray their own prayers and God hears them. But for some reason, there's something special about someone who has their head right in tune with God's heart. Someone that has their mind stayed on Jesus. Amen, somebody. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, need a, I need another volunteer. We're getting volunteers today. I have to have fun preaching because if I don't, it's, uh, I never get a day off. <laughs> so, hey, um, Seth, come help me. So there's several ways. I don't think I'm even on my notes right that now, right now, but I'm having a whole lot of fun doing this. Are you guys having fun? Are you okay? All right. As long as you're good. There's a couple ways that we need to, I'll come back to some of that. There's a couple ways that we can get close to God. How many know that he inhabits the praises of his people? It means he built an inhabitation, a home. We want God to make this place his home. We want God to make our hearts his home. He infills us, amen? He fills us. We were formed to be filled. Isn't that powerful? And you're empty without Jesus. And that's why some people can't find him. Would you wrap that around you a couple times? We're going to have some fun. All right. All right, we're good. Go ahead and run that around. So God, God makes an habitation. Praise. There's something else that's connected to praise. Did you know that? There's a domino effect in on everything in the scriptures. So that's why you have to be careful if you get doctrine wrong. Because if you get doctrine wrong, you make the word of God error. And God cannot error. And if he does error, then his word is error. And therefore, we cannot believe any of it. So you have to make sure you understand. I had someone tell me that you don't need to be baptized to be saved. I'm sorry, but Mark says in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So either Mark got it wrong, and there's an error in the word of God, which makes our God erroneous, not able to be true, which means you can't believe any of it, or we do have to be baptized to be saved. See the domino effect here? What happens if you get one thing wrong, it starts making other things wrong in the scripture. That's why you have to be very careful. That's why you need to get your head close to God's heart so that whenever you get things a little bit wrong, you're willing to go and listen to the word of God and not filter things through your own opinions. Hello, somebody. If you take your opinion and you read the word of God and make the word of God fit your opinion, you'll never get it right. You will mess up the whole word of God. But if you take the word of God and shape your opinion from the word of God, now, now you're talking about something that fits together. And the Bible says that we should study the word of God so that it all fits together, so that we can be properly able to handle the word of God. So there's something connected to praise. And praise builds an inhabitation for God. If praise builds his home, what does praise bring with it? Well, guess what? Praise brings victory with it. When Joshua was to march around Jericho, you know what he told him to do? He told him to march around, then the last day march around seven times. And then what did he tell him to do? Shout or praise. Whatever they did physically in the Old Testament is for us to do spiritually. 
Okay, so what happens is the entire Old Testament establishes that praise to God brings victory. And when you see it in the New Testament, you, well, you know all through Psalms, Psalms in different places, 45, 47, it starts with praise ye the Lord, the chapter ends with praise ye the Lord. God likes praise. Do you know, did you know that? I think God likes praise. So what happens is everywhere you go, if you learn how to put this into your life and praise God, you can feel, build an inhabitation for God at your workplace, by a water cooler, in your car on lunch, amen? If you have a need, I drove the other day to Pewaukee Lake, sat there and just began to pray, and God was beautifully in with me there in that moment. Why? Because he makes an inhabitation. He comes and stays where you are. I was making room with my praise, but with my praise, while I'm making room for him, Brother Steve, along comes victory with it, because victory cannot help but be attached to praise, because that's how God designed it, and it will always be the way he designed designed it been. Isn't that awesome? So that whenever I'm praising God, I don't even know what victory is following me. Amen? I don't even know what's about to overcome me. I don't know what I'm going to have take place. But all I know is there's power in my praise because the power is in God and he shows up in those praises. Amen? That is so fun. I just, I don't know, don't even know if I want to stop dragging him around. It's just a lot of fun. This is my way of getting back at Seth. I just humiliate him in front of everybody. You can take that off. Thank you. There's power and praise. Someone say amen. amen. Let's praise the Lord together right now and put power in this place. Amen. Would you lift your hands and just let victory chase you down right now? If there's something in your life you need victory for, would you just put it in your mind and say, God, I praise you for it. Would you inhabit these praises? And I know victory will come with it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Someone say revival is here. We're going to put him on our schedule. Someone say I'm going to put him on my schedule. I'm not going to keep a stable mentality. I'm going to have room for Jesus. Amen. I grew up in Alaska. And in growing up in Alaska, you learn one thing. Fire has to be tended. Amen. When the fire becomes unimportant, the fire goes out. We're making the fire important. Amen. The fire has come. We saw nine get the Holy Ghost last Sunday. We brought in a harvester. Nine got the Holy Ghost. Those are things and seeds that we've been planting for several years, some of us. Some of the situations are several years. And some of them are not. They're instant. But somebody else must have planted. God was working, obviously. And so we saw harvest. Amen. And I'm grateful for it. And I give God praise for it. But in that fire that has fallen on us, I guarantee you, God would not tell me revival's here if it's just going to be a continuation of what we've seen already. This is a new day. Somebody said amen. This is a new time for us. And so I want you to know that the fire has fallen, but we must maintain the fire with our praise. Our praise is what puts wood and kindling on the fire that God has fallen on us, that God has shed upon us. That is our response to God is that we are thankful, number one, and that we praise him and that allows victory to continue because revival is here. Amen. That will be the response of this church from now on, on a hungry soul. Actually, I really feel that God is telling me that the fire is going to keep people warm. If we continue to stoke the fire, people will be warm to it. They'll come out of the cold of this world, the harshness of this world, and they will feel the warmth of the Holy Ghost fire in this place, and it will draw them to Have you ever walked in up on a fire? 
when you were cold or when you were wet and it just felt so good and you just stood there and just soaked in the heat. That's what this church is going to feel like. That's the impression I'm getting from the Holy Ghost. That is what I feel. That we are going to literally have people come in and they just want to stay around and just soak in the feelings of God's Spirit and just soak in how they feel when they come here and absorb the warmth of living close to God and having their head against His heart and knowing that God is here because revival is here. Amen? It's that response that I am so grateful for. And if they do not respond, then they are not hungry for God. And we don't have time left before Jesus comes to worry about those that simply are not hungry. Fire keeps the wolves out. Did you know that? I, I, I stayed the night with a friend of mine near Wolf Creek. We should have known. It's called Wolf Creek. And by the middle of the night, we were surrounded by a pack of wolves, our tent and our campfire. Do you know, Ben, the only thing that kept them from attacking us and coming after us was the fact that we had what? A fire. The Bible says there's wolves in sheep clothing that try to come into the church. Do you know the only thing that keeps wolves out of the church? Fire. That's why we have to keep the fire alive. We have to build kindling. I don't care if the wood's wet. I don't care if God's been raining on your parade for months. I don't care what's been going on in your life. The circumstances cannot determine how you respond to the falling fire. You must simply push yourself. You must simply try to get yourself in a frame and mode of mind that you literally build kindling to bring to the house of God. We're not just a flame. This place is a fire. When we leave here, we take the fire with us. Amen? And when we come back, we need to come with a fire torch. We need to come excited for God, ready to add to the blaze that's going on in this place. And when we do that, people will come out to watch the fire. Amen. They will come out to watch what's lit up in this place. I know you've heard sermons on the fire of the Holy Ghost before, but I'm talking about what God told me this weekend. He said, I put in that place a revival and the way that you're going to keep it is to kindling and put wood on the fire. We have to manage the fire. And so if we didn't go out in the woods and have the common sense to get, get a bunch of wood for that evening, we would have run out of fire. We would have been wolf cakes. <laughs> we would have been dinner. Amen? So we got up the next morning and we walked into the woods, Steve, and there were paw prints because we were on a, in a bed of a lake. And it, normally when the river floods in the spring because the snow is melting in the mountains and it runs down and it and, and just runs over the banks and runs out into the area where we were camping, it creates like a silt bed and, and mud. And so where we had our tent all around us was little you know, like mud ravines where the water would go when, when, when it was overflowing. But it wasn't overflowing its banks at that time. So literally, it created a space where we could see every track that was around the camp. And we went out there, and there were just huge hand-sized paw prints all the way around our tent. I mean, just in, right into the edge of the woods. And I was taking a shovel, and I was shoveling gravel, and I was throwing it into the woods, and I could hear them, the wolves scatter as I was throwing gravel. But you know what? It didn't send them away. Throwing stuff at the enemy doesn't send him away. He just takes a different tactic and comes back at you. But he can never attack the fire. I just wish I could get that home because that's what I feel like preaching. I really do. I really pre feel like preaching the fire of God because I want you to know that the fire of God, when it falls, it's powerful because it not only burns, it burns away everything. Amen? It burns away every dross, every situation. It keeps the wolves out. It keeps out even this. Fire makes it easier to handle the bite of the enemy. Amen? 
Paul was encouraging the fire whenever a viper jumped out and latched onto his hand. What did he do? He just tossed, he just shook it off in the fire. If you have no fire in a church, you have no place to shake off the wounds of the world. Come on, somebody, help me preach today. You have no place to shake off the bitterness of the bite of the enemy, amen? But if you have a fire kindled, if you have somebody tending the fire of the Holy Ghost in this place, then somebody can come in and they can be unharmed by the bite of the enemy. They can be unharmed by the hurts of this world and they can literally shake off everything that has tried to destroy them in the fires of revival. Amen? It's easier to shake off the pains of life in the fire and go on unharmed when revival has come. Someone say revival has come. And God told me it's here. It's here. It's here. And I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> I know I'm harping on that. I hope your hearts can understand that there's no hope for anyone if we don't have the fire. There's no hope for anyone. There's no help for the hindrances. There's no joy in the injustices of life. There's no peace in troubled times. It's because revival has come and it's caused by one whose name is Jesus. So I'm going to praise him. Because my praise is kindling for the fire. Amen. My praise encourages Jesus to come who brings revival. Someone said amen. David said in Psalms 22 and 12, he said, Don't be distant from me, for trouble is near. There is certainty. There is certainly no helper. I don't know if I got that reference right. Sorry about that. I wrote it down in the middle of doing some of these things. It's not the right reference, but the scripture says in Psalms, it says, don't be distant from me for trouble is near. There is certainly no helper in the NIV. There is certainly no help for this world if there is not a church on fire. Trouble is near. Just keep Jesus closer. That's the point. Just keep Jesus closer. John, <clears throat> um, the reason why I brought up John is because John ends up on the Isle of Patmos. The Patmos is like a um, an modern-day Alcatraz. I know Alcatraz closed in 63. It's an island off of California that was a penitentiary. It was a military base turned into a penitentiary, a, a prison. But this Isle of Patmos is off of Turkey. It's kind of the same situation. It was just a prison. And they sent people there. I don't think John was all alone. Do you? I mean, it was a prison. I don't think he was all alone. But it was. there was no trees there. There was no rest from the sun. There was no shade. It was all just rock. That's all it was, just big, one big rock island. And I think John was there with others. And if you were John, just put yourself in the scenario. You were the closest to Jesus. You loved him and gave more of your heart to him than any one of his followers, any of the other followers. You literally gave all of yourself to Jesus so much that he called you his beloved. Wouldn't you feel a little bit betrayed? If you ended up on an island with a bunch of criminals, you did all the right stuff. You did good all your life. And yet you are accused and you are imprisoned. Wouldn't you be bitter? Don't you think the devil would come to you and say, look what Jesus did for you. How great is that? He surely set you up. Look how wonderful his victories are. You're now imprisoned. But John didn't get bitter. John didn't get on his knees and say, God, why? <laughs> why did you do this to me? I was a good disciple. 
<laughs> I was the best one, in fact. I had my head on your breast at the Last Supper. He didn't throw a temper tantrum, really. He literally, the Bible says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He didn't take all of life's circumstances, pile them all up, and blame it on God. Look where I'm at. There's no rest from the heat. There's no trees. I can't even get a shade. I was good. I've been good all my life. And now look where it got me. I did all of this ministry for you, Jesus. And now look, I'm here. I'm not even in a position anymore. I don't even have a place that I call my church. I'm not in Jerusalem like James or someone else who has a place of prominence. But yet, I was your beloved. That just seems so hurtful. But he didn't let himself be hurt by it. He said, I don't care if I have to live on this rock till I die. I'm going to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. I'm going to prepare him room in my situation and in his praise. John, I don't think, had any way of knowing that he was going to write the book that closes out this world. the beloved of God. Had he known what the, the revelations that God was going to give him, he would have been like, bring on Patmos. <laughs> I don't care because God's going to give me some crazy revelation. But instead, he, like you and I, was human, but still made room for Jesus. That's what I'm trying to get to today. Stoke the fire through praise, and stoke the fire through dedication. And the last thing, and I'm closing. If you go to Matthew chapter 9, Nate, there's two things that encourage the fire. So the question is, what makes revival stay? What keeps Jesus here? I'm so glad you asked. It's praise, like I said, because praise brings victory. And the second thing might be a little bit strange for you, or maybe it, it's expected, maybe you know. But John, but Matthew 9 and 9, there's a story that I'm going to finish with today. And take it down for just a second. And in that story, we find out a very key detail to what keeps revival fire here. It came, it's here but we have to encourage it. And how do we do that? How, there's two things that are attractive to God. Number one is our praise, and number two is sinners and outcasts. Sinners and outcasts. People that need him, the sick, the hurting. Those are what keeps revival coming to a church. If we have no one in need in here, then our praise, will inhabit, he'll inhabit, and he'll minister to us. But there's a greater ministry and greater fire that falls when there's people who need him here. Amen. So sinners are pre-qualified for the presence of God. Did you know that? Put that up if you would. Now this is a story about Matthew that I want to prove my point with. And Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. He was a tax collector. I want to say tax collector. Everybody say, ooh. Tax collectors in Jewish times had the same response from people as a person who's selling drugs to minors in the back of a grocery store or in the back of a, a gas station. If you're, selling, if you're selling drugs to a middle schooler and people know about you, they're like, oh, that's just 
what is wrong? That's just so wrong. That's the same effect people had when they said tax collector. Did you know that? They were that hated. Literally that hated. In fact, so much so that he saith unto him, follow me. What? Hold on a second. We'll get back to that whole hated tax collector thing. He didn't have, he didn't have any requirements. See, this is the story about Matthew, this dude, this, this guy that wrote the home, but he wrote his own story. Isn't that funny? He's writing about himself. So Matthew in this, he's a tax collector. He has no, he has no qualifications to follow Jesus. And maybe I should have put this in the following Jesus series. I don't know. But anyways, and he said unto him, follow me. That's simply all Jesus said to him. And he arose, he got up and followed him, left the table, left what he was doing. And if you understand tax collectors in those days, they literally auctioned off the right to collect, in Rome, they auctioned off the right to collect taxes in different provinces or different areas of Jerusalem in different outlying areas. So when they auctioned off, usually it was wealthy people that went and bid for the opportunity to collect taxes for Rome in those places. So whenever they literally, because he's a tax collector, it means, number one, he's probably wealthy. Number two, he either works for someone who's wealthy or he is wealthy. And so what he did was he has the right to collect taxes, but because people didn't know the transfer rate of the Roman money to their stuff, they literally had the opportunity to collect however much taxes they want. They had to collect however much Rome needed. They had to send back to Rome, but they could collect over that amount, and nobody knew what the amount really was. So they could literally have the nicest stuff, the nicest house, the biggest places, because they collect so much. So I hope you're following me with this, but I'll get back to the story. And so what he did they were hated because nobody knew if they were cheating them or not and they knew they were they were complete cheats they were liars stealers and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house so what happens is Jesus goes up to this publican who is an absolute disaster compared to everybody else he's hated among all and he said hey follow me you're qualified to follow me and guess what we're going to go to your house for lunch Lisey we're, we're literally he, he literally spends times at people's houses that you and I are told not to go to. You know, he's comfortable. Jesus was comfortable around sinners. He wasn't affected by the sinners. He affected sinners. But they were comfortable around him. That says something, that you can't be too holy in front of people or holier than thou in front of people because if sinners and publicans are not comfortable with your presence like they were with Jesus, then something's wrong, amen? You need to be able to reach to people and not make them feel like they're less than you. We were just talking about this, Nate, weren't we? They're less than you. You have to be able to reach to people and have them be comfortable with you because those publican and sinners, they showed up at the house. Behold, many. Now you got Peter. He's like, no, no, we're not really going to a tax collector's house, are we, Jesus? Yeah, yeah, we're going to Matthew's house. We're going to go to Matthew's house. And what are we going to do at Matthew's house? Well, we're going to have dinner. We're not really going to eat with them, are we? Yes, we're going to eat with them, Peter. We're going to go there and we're going to eat with them. So Matthew's literally having dinner with Jesus Christ and he has no qualifications for doing so. But Jesus loves him and wants him to follow him. And then all of Matthew's friends show up the party just got worse literally now all the sinners come to the party and all the and look at this it says behold many publicans and sinners they separated sinners from the publicans the sinners were even better than the publicans <laughs> they're like and so they separated and sat down with him and his disciples go into the next verse it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? They were like, this is so wrong. 
the Pharisees, they always had something wrong with something. Go on to the next verse. But when Jesus heard that, he said, well, I like to think that he told somebody else to go say unto them, but he's like, go tell them. They're sitting in the house. Probably the Pharisees are outside the house because they wouldn't go in where the sinners were. So I'm guessing that he sent somebody. He's like, hey, Matthew, Matthew, this is your house. You go tell them. I'm pretending right now. He's like, you go tell them. You go tell them this. You go, you go tell them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And Matthew's like, okay, wait, wait a minute. You just called me sick. <laughs> it was like, Jesus was like, no, dude, you're totally sick. High five. <laughs> no, he was like, you, you don't understand. These people need something. And Matthew had to struggle probably with that understanding because he's writing this story. He's labeling himself sick. He knew what he was. And for some of us, we have to realize that when people come in contact with the Jesus that we've made room for, there's something that aches in their heart that says, I need something. There's something more. I, I think I'm sick. I think I'm hurt. I think I need more than I can get from this world. And they will experience revival in their life. That's the point. And then the next verse says this. He says, oh, and also tell them, Matthew, tell them this, that I have many mercies and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was comfortable around sinners. Revival is kept alive by praise and by the presence of sinners and publicans the presence of those in need of what he's giving.